0: Sound design. This software is easy to use, it just delivers you data. The hard thing is figuring out then what to do with that data. And it can Mm -hmm. be easy to get confused.
1: Totally. Totally. I mean data acquisition and then you know interpreting that data. That's the those are the biggest mistakes I see guest engineers and and other techs do. Sound design.
0: Sound design live is produced independently. By me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer and the home of the world's first online career coaching program optimized for audio professionals. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by Dale West, audio engineer extraordinaire down in Orange County. Dale, thanks for joining me on Sound Design Live. Super pumped to be here, man. Thanks for inviting me. So the reason I asked Dale to join me today is because we both just took the Sim 3 seminar at Meyer Sound, and I thought it would be great if we could both share a couple of the most important things we learned there. But before we get into that, Dale, what is your reference material playlist? What is the first thing you play (laughs) once you get the sound system set up, you verify that everything is working, and you want to hear some music?
1: If you asked any of my friends, they'd be able to answer this for you because it's the same three songs every (laughs) single time. Of course. And they hate it now. Yeah, it's so funny. But the songs are uh, Daft Punk, Fragments of Time. The the other one is Disclosure, Help Me Lose My Mind. and then the final one is Dana Crawl Temptation Temptation I can't resist Between those 3 tunes I can really get like the Daft Punk is kind of it's like on the Steely Dan kind of level where it's just super super pristine production mm-hmm. but it's not Steely Dan and so then it's so then I don't make everybody else mad. Uh, the Dana Crawl stuff, you know, super hi-fi, jazz, double bass, you know, sounds great. And then the disclosure is gets all the low end content and and all of that stuff. So between those three songs, I can kind of get the system to to shout out all full range everything at me and, and I can kind of tell what's what from those three songs. And then of course, the good old microphone actually talking through the PA is extremely important.
0: And when you're playing that music. Are you playing it just back through your phone, through a DI? Through the laptop. So I
1: have those. I actually bought the CDs of those albums, ripped them lossless, and then I play them off the laptop out of my uh, audio interface. Sure. Okay. So, because I've got Smart up anyway. So, you know what I mean? I've already got the outputs ready to go. So it's just kind of part of the process of setting up front of house where I just get all that
0: built. Yeah, I should probably do that. I'm still playing stuff out of my phone.
1: I don't know. It, it could be a bit semantics in, in terms of like, you know, if you're in a giant room, like what, yeah. how does it sound <laughs> different through your phone versus through an interface? I don't know. I don't know if it's that critical.
0: I guess as long as I listen to it like on my headphones first and then listen into it in the room, it shouldn't yeah. be too surprising.
1: Main thing is as long as it's lossless. Right. You know, MP3, no bueno.
0: Okay, so Sim3 is Meyer Sound's audio analyzer, the original high-resolution measurement tool designed specifically for audio engineers. So, if you've ever used Smart or SatLive, then Sim3 will look very familiar to you because they are basically copying Sim3. So, Dale, why don't we all use Sim3 instead of SatLive or Room EQ Wizard or something like that? Money <laughs> yeah. Sim3 is $10,000. So, yeah. unless you are like Cirque du Soleil and have a complete Meyer house um, mm-hmm. and you're on tour and you need to set that stuff up every day, or maybe you just are a rental company that has a bunch of Meyer sound gear, um, like some yeah. of the guys who were at the seminar, yeah. you probably don't own one of these. Okay, so let's get into some of the most important things we learned during this four-day—I don't know—mind blaster. I'm going to yeah. call it that. So, um, Dale, do you want to go first?
1: Uh, sure. So, I've done uh, smart training. I've actually hosted it a couple of times. Had Jamie come out, and so that the the great thing was having done that, uh, a son of Sim, as Bob called it. Uh-huh. Um, having done that, I was really I felt really prepared for this kind of next level of training with with Bob so and, you know and I've been using smart for years now mm-hmm. um, but for me the one of the biggest like application bonuses that I got was learning the actual mathematics behind decoding phase and the time offset oh good yeah that was like the big aha moment for me so now when I'm looking at smart and I'm going to phase align, you know, subs and mains or something like that. I can just look at the phase traces and see, okay, at eighty hertz they're sixty degrees off. And instead of kind of just adding delay to one of them, whichever's first, to Basically, kind of guess and check. I just know what I've been doing. Guess
0: and check. Guess and check. Watch the phase trace move. Exactly. Exactly. Just watch it
1: move. Now, I can just kind of, boop. I I made a little Excel spreadsheet with, like, all the takeaways
0: from the the Myers class. Oh, shit. Are you going to share that with us? sure sure yeah I'll,
1: I'll, okay. however that would end up happening
0: let's yeah, put that absolutely. let's put that on the the page for this podcast so if you go to sounddesignlive.com and search for sim three seminar I'm assuming that's what we'll be titling this then um I'm sure we'll, we'll put a download link there um, yeah that's awesome Dale
1: but uh, but anyway so now with that spreadsheet I can just kind of mission control over boom enter in sixty degrees 80 Hertz enter and it spits out 2.0 milliseconds. Yeah. You know? Okay.
0: So, can I, I don't, the math is not actually that complicated. So, can no. you tell us? I know it would be, it'll be easier for people just to have the formula, just yeah. to have like the spreadsheet. But um, do you want to go ahead and tell us the formula? So, if you have two phase traces that you're trying to compare, can you give us an example?
1: Sure. So, we'll, we'll say the same thing. We'll say if 80 hertz is, is off by 60 degrees, it's the, the frequency in degrees, so 60 degrees divided by 360. And then you take that number and you divide it by the frequency span or the single frequency. So this works too if, let's say you're trying to create a, let's say your phase traces don't match in terms of angle. So you're using a different manufacturer or the presets aren't set up to where the the phase angles from place A to place B uh, those don't match. Well, if you can kind of determine an area where they're closest and say that that is uh, a, crossover a range, a
0: region, maybe. Yeah, yeah. A crossover
1: region. Thank you. That's the,
0: that's no, the range. Key term actually, there. is better. You're right. Crossover range. range.
1: So if that is from eighty to one hundred and twenty, and you can tell by looking at the face traces above that, and below that, they fall apart. But in that area, they look like they have about the same angle. Then you can do uh, you can do the delta of that. So 80 to 120, so you can divide that or, or subtract that, rather.
0: Now, this is easy for us to understand because we just went through four <laughs> days of this, yeah. and it's kind of all in the in the front of our heads right now. But just for people to understand a little bit, when, when Dale's saying the difference in degrees, just to clarify, I think you mean you take the measurement of your high-phase reading and subtract the low phase reading. So uh, you set a difference mm-hmm. of 60 degrees. So if you have a zero degree, um, sorry, so your first one might be 60 degrees and your low phase might be zero degrees. So you subtract right. those and you get a difference of 60 degrees. Bingo. Okay. And that's in, in that little Excel sheet. It actually has the you
1: know delta phase divided by 360 divided by delta frequency. So that might help uh, kind of put it together.
0: And really, what that's done for your life has saved you what, like two seconds?
1: Two, maybe three, <laughs> <Yeah>. maybe.
0: <laughs> but it's just so good to know, you know, instead of just yeah. kind of guessing.
1: Well, and you know, I mean, there was there was quite a few other little. Um, one of the other ones is logarithmic to linear, and that's something that takes myself and and most other people. It takes us. It's it's quite a head trip when you start thinking about, you know, our brain and our is psychoacoustics and how we like to have things in a logarithmic fashion mm-hmm. but there's really nothing in the world of sound that behaves logarithmically mm-hmm. so one of the other things that really kind of help out is the chart that they that Bob gave us that is all of the logarithmic to linear kind of translation so for example a 0 dB signal plus a 0 dB signal equals 6 dB of, of summation mm-hmm. using that chart you can also do things like uh, distance ratios. If something is, you take a, a, a trace at 50 milliseconds, you take another trace and it's 100 milliseconds, you should be able to predict that that is a 6 dB lower trace at the end. And so that, that logarithmic to linear op- offset uh, is also something that's helpful. And it, it's not something that necessarily changes how I do my job but what it does do is it adds another layer of predictability and confirming results. You know The, the, the biggest thing that I've found in, in systems teching and tuning is that if things aren't behaving in a way that you predicted, you really need to find out why. And so having something that you can use to check and balance your own method is really, really critical to finding out, oh, wait, I screwed this up over here.
0: Because it's not behaving the way that I thought it would. One of the biggest takeaways for everyone was that Sim Three is not that hard to learn. Like we all yeah. got a chance to use it for a little while, and you pick it up in a few minutes. And there's really not that much. It, this software is easy to use. It just delivers you data. The hard thing is figuring out then what to do with that data, and it can mm-hmm. be easy to get confused. Totally, totally.
1: I mean, data acquisition, and then you know, interpreting that data. That's the, those are the biggest mistakes I see guest engineers and, and other techs do. It, it's just, you know, because you, you have bad data or you interpret that bad data and now you're making real world decisions based on something that's not really solidified very well. And, and so now you're, you're kind of, you know, laying some landmines down for yourself. <laughs>
0: When we (laughs) planned to do this, I was thinking, oh, great, we'll just give some of our biggest takeaways. But it's it's almost impossible to get into... These big takeaways that you and I got that are really going to change the way that we do our jobs without kind of explaining more about where they come from and why we do them. Um, And so I'm going to try and get into the lateral aspect ratio thing here that I think you and I both thought was really interesting. Yeah. And um, I hope that, number one, that I don't fuck (laughs) it up. And I hope, number two, that um, it helps people instead of confusing them. So here's what I'll say, first of all you and I both learned a lot about beam width and shrinkage which is this funny term for um, <laughs> the coverage angle of a speaker changing size if you change the level relative to something else or if you if you're measuring it laterally okay. Before I say any more reasons why this is important, it can be super helpful for deciding where to position, aim, and measure your front fills and under balconies, Mm -hmm. Um, but it can really be used anywhere where you want to know the effective coverage width at a given distance. So there are two pretty easy ways to figure this out using math, and then there's an even easier way um, using a free app. So which should I talk about first?
1: Well, let's dive into the math first. (laughs) Get everybody (laughs) plenty confused and then say, oh, here's the easy way. Just download this.
0: (laughs) Right. Let me just give a quick example. Take a 60-degree speaker. We work out through some math that I'll tell you in a second that a 60-degree speaker has a lateral aspect ratio of one. So we can know that at 10 feet on axis from the speaker, that that speaker will have a coverage width of 10 feet because 10 times one is 10. Hopefully that was pretty clear. Um, The easy way, so the easy way to know which speakers have which lateral aspect ratio corresponding numbers is just to have a chart where you have it all written. And so you can see like, okay, 60 degree is one, 90 degree is 1.4. And then you have this number that you can quickly measure by a distance. So you can just take, you're out in the field You take out your laser distance measure, you see how far away uh, some row is from your speaker, and then you can know what your coverage width is um, for that row, where the speaker is aimed, for example. So the math to figure that out, though, if you don't have this chart, is to take your advertised coverage width of the speaker. So say it's a 60 degree speaker, divide that by two, multiply by the sign, which is a Trigonometry function and then take one <laughs> and divide it by that number, and then you get the li- <laughs> then you get the f- forward aspect ratio, and then you need to divide the forward aspect ratio by two. okay, so if I, it sounded pretty bad when I just said it because it <laughs> took a pretty long time bad if man. you see it written down it's not that big a deal. okay, the easy way to do that is just to download daniel Lundberg's uncoupled array calculator and uh, that is a really nice little utility for figuring out what to do with placement and aim of your uh, front fills, and especially front fills, but also uh, under balconies. Dale, is there anything that you could that you wanted to add about this this same yeah. subject? Was this helpful for you? Are you going to use it? Oh, this is yeah, this is wildly helpful. I never really um, considered
1: the idea that. You know, I, I think taking a step back, it's important for people to realize that the that the concept of what we're talking about here is based on changing our. You know, we always see in our head that kind of that the radial dispersion angle of sixty degrees or ninety degrees or whatever. So, meaning equal distance from the speaker, you make a radius, and then wherever that sixty dB down point is, that's your that's that radial splay. Yep. But when you're doing a front fill or under balcony, your listener positions aren't on a radius. You know right. The front row is straight. And so it's important to realize that, yes, it's 60 degrees radially, but from seat one to seat seven is a straight line. And if that's 60 degrees, then a 60-degree speaker is not going to make it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's really the kind of the idea behind this.
0: And I think what I have done wrong in the past that this will help me with is that when I have been setting up a row of speakers for front fills like that, for example, I will just get out my triangle template for 60 degrees Mm -hmm. and then I'll use my laser and just line up the speakers so that all of the off-axis points are matching. And what I didn't realize is that those off-axis points are for the radial distance. So so I can't have my on-axis point be on row 2 and my off-axis points be on row 2. That's right. so that's lateral. So the speaker is actually a lot more narrow yep. when you measure it laterally.
1: You know, I I love this about going to seminars and stuff. There's a lot of things that that are just kind of counterintuitive about the exponential growth that kind of continues to happen, you know, again, logarithmic and linear. The you would think, okay, just get a wider front fill. But you could double the width of your coverage pattern in your front fill and only gain maybe two more seats in that minus 60B point.
0: I have to give uh, some credit to Merlin Van Veen because he sent me a couple of images that he uses in his seminar. So apparently if you go to Merlin Van Veen's seminar, you'll learn a lot about this. Um, he's got some great images and he showed me this chart that compares forward aspect ratio to lateral aspect ratio. And without getting into it too much, I just wanted to, Dale, confirm what you're saying that, yeah, so 90 degree speaker is pretty much the only one where you have uh, your forward aspect ratio number and your lateral aspect ratio number being the same. Uh, so that's the only time when you can use those numbers, when you're basically getting as much speaker as you paid for, another way of right. saying saying. <laughs> right, right, right. right.
1: we've probably confused everyone
0: very very well. At this point. Well, let's let's get some easier things. I mean, we front-loaded it with like the hardest, most important, most valuable things. Yeah. So, I have a couple of easier ones. So, let's let's talk about the let's talk about EQ for a second because we we learned some really great just easy EQ takeaways and one of them is I was going to say I like this quote um Anyone who has ever tried to do their system tuning with an RTA and a Graphic EQ has either not done so again or has gone into video. Uh, so <laughs> you'll get that joke if you you know, have read Bob's book or uh, read any of my articles. I do a lot of Graphic EQ bashing. The really important thing that I learned is that I've always wondered why, after all these years, we still have so many Graphic EQs, in our job and, and why 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 have those not just gone away when they are pretty much useless for system tuning. Yeah. And one thing that Bob explained that I thought was really interesting is that um, he says that people were afraid to use parametric EQs for a long time because they couldn't imagine the curve it was creating. So one of the important things that uh, these measurement systems like SIM3 did was help us visualize the curve. So. People still do that. That's why graphic EQs are still so popular because they have numbers on there, and you can just imagine like um, a notch coming down on an EQ or something. Yeah. So that that kind of helped clear that up for me a little bit. Which the
1: irony of that is the part that really cracks me up because you know it's a graphical representation of your EQ. That's where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. But it's anything but that. You know, different new manufacturers have different widths. Right. And you don't see the stacking up, you know. You if you cut 400 and you cut 315, there's a the cut is longer than what you see represented with those little faders. So it's just it, it's it's kind of funny to me that we that we still think that oh that's how much EQ I'm doing, and that's not that's not the case at all.
0: Uh, Dale, it sounds like you're saying I'm being lied to by my. Trusted your, graphic EQ. Your
1: GEQ is a liar.
0: <laughs> um, okay. Did you have something to say about EQ? I have uh, a couple more things about
1: that. Uh, yeah. I. Um, this is something that Jamie, when he does the smart training, and Bob, they both echo this. And I. And and once I've kind of taken this to heart and and used it myself, I've realized how true it is. Um, and that is, do not do systems tuning with like a thousand tiny little high q cuts um it's not a video game you know all these tiny little peaks and all that they as bob says it'll be gone in a seat you know it's you don't have to worry about making it literally flat i think bob's one of bob's lines was he does about four eq points and if he has to do more than that he's talking to a rigger because you can't solve it with eq um You know that was one of the things that I really liked about the seminar was I finally got a good kind of a clear workflow of how important the physical world is, and it's something that I kind of knew, but now being able to articulate that is helpful. Yeah, don't over EQ systems. I I see that all the time. I hear that all the time. It is not about getting that one data point flat because you move (laughs) the mic six inches and all those cuts you did now create all these tiny little holes. And chasing your tail.
0: That's a great guideline. And, and I used to tell people, even though I didn't do it, I used to tell people, you know, I try to use, you know, try to do it with one filter. If you can't do it with one filter, try to do it with two filters. And if you can't do it, you know, try it with three. And then at the end of the day, you got to do what you got to do. So do whatever you need to do. But that's a much better guideline, you know, go after yeah. the four biggest problems that you see yep. Yeah,
1: uh, I typically don't do any filter. When tuning PA, I typically don't do filters tighter than one octave.
0: Wow. That's okay. kind
1: of my guideline that yeah. I that I try to set. Now, sometimes if I've done, you know, six or seven different mic locations and I continue to see some, you know, gnarly little peak somewhere that's kind of a room mode that is in a lot of the seats, then I might go something smaller than that. But I generally, you know, the, yeah, the reality is, is you know all these PA companies now, all these manufacturers—they make really great-sounding stuff, and they've done all the laser high, you know, Q stuff in the preset. And if you need to do those kinds of things, then something else is going on.
0: And talking about uh, narrow filters, I think the mistake that I sometimes make is overestimating what you can actually do with EQ. So I'll see something that's narrow and I'll think, you know, it's narrow, but it's kind of big, so maybe I can take care of it. Mm -hmm. And then I try a few different filters and just looking at the results... There's really no way of getting a narrow filter in there without affecting other frequencies around it, which are all fine. And so it's not just a theory of like, oh, don't make narrow filters. It's like, no, it's a, it actually doesn't help you. It's impossible. No,
1: no, <laughs> no. Yeah, I I think of it as tonal shaping. Uh, that's kind of the headspace that I'm in when I'm when I'm EQing a system. Is it's you know it's tonal shaping. It's
0: not quote tuning the room. Another thing that was important for me that it's going to change the way I do some of my work is that Bob said that he does not worry about cutting the low end out of his delay speakers and he called that a Bambi versus Godzilla situation. And um, by that he just meant that the power, the level from the main speakers is going to be so much more important than any kind of low end that you have on your delay speakers.
1: Yeah, I think that that was some clear takeaway for me too, because I'm not only am I guilty of that, I do it in the front fills also. I'll usually high pass like yes.
0: 150
1: in the front yes. fills.
0: But you um, know what he does that's to the front fills that I thought was really interesting is he makes sure to cut those really high frequencies. He said, yeah. watch out for the sizzle, like around uh, 18, 20K, because, you know, th- you're at your mixed position, you can't hear that stuff, so you might be turning up the high end because you want to hear some more air in your vocal, and then it just sounds like bacon frying in the front fills.
1: It's it's important to realize that the ex, that the purpose behind front fills and delays or under balconies or whatever it is is you're extending the main. You know, you got to think of it that way. So if the mains aren't producing it, having something else that is it's kind of working against the end result or the mm-hmm. end goal of Extending the main coverage,
0: so Dale, we've said the name Bob a bunch of times now. I don't know if we actually mentioned that the, <laughs> the person who teaches this um, seminar is named Bob McCarthy, and he's not the only person that teaches it. Uh, people who listen to this podcast know who Bob McCarthy is. I've interviewed him a couple times before. Uh, but anyway, that's who we're talking about.
1: Bob McCarthy being kind of the the grandfather of FFT in a lot of ways
0: well how many how many chances do you think you're going to have in your life to learn a piece of software or a piece of hardware from the person who created it.
1: That's kind of the main reason that I went, to be honest with you, was you know, you're not going to find a more experienced and more educated source for this kind of stuff. It's just not going to happen. This he has been literally at it since the invention of the, the hardware. I mean, he didn't come up with the math, but he certainly made it work for our industry.
0: So Dale, I have I have one more thing about EQ that I think we can both talk about um, and then see if there's anything else. Bob says if the array is uncoupled, he doesn't use a spectral divide because he wants the band to stay together. And so what I mean by that is that if you have a speaker that's flown and it's, say, uh, 20 feet up in the air and then you have your subs on the ground he doesn't necessarily divide those, and that's what I've always done. I'm like, okay, we better put a um, high-pass filter on my main up there, and we better put a low-pass filter on my sub because we gotta no. keep those separated so that their interaction can be minimized. But he says, no, you want to keep the band together. Those two are supporting each other. Why not? Why separate them? Um, we can make them work together. In, my, in harmony, basically. And so it just yeah. sort of like took away the fear a little bit of uh, yeah, of making that work,
1: yeah, you know, I thought that that was a little bit interesting. um and uh, and that works for Meyer, but most manufacturers it doesn't really work because you don't you're not allowed <laughs> any play in the crossover region with most manufacturers. You can have a couple of set frequencies that the DSP allows. um, you know, like, and JBL or, or L Acoustics or DMB and stuff, you can't just, you can't say, well, is going to be here today because that's what I want and pick some arbitrary number. The one thing about Myers that I think is really fantastic is how well different, um, different speakers from different catalogs kind of all work together in harmony and everybody shakes hands and yeah, everything. they should all, all play together. Yeah, a lot of manufacturers don't have that kind of reverse engineering built in. If you create uh, a, a system in whatever the network manager or R1 or you know whatever you're using, um, performance manager, whatever it is, and you kind of deploy that system, then the presets kind of go, and it is what it is. You don't really get to, to move that around. And so I think that that's one of the advantages that Myers has over some of the other manufacturers is you can have that option if you want it.
0: So it sounds like you're saying that the reason that Bob McCarthy can get away with that and the systems that he's using, he's talking about systems where those two speakers that are uncoupled but are supposed to play together, Mm -hmm. he can make them their phase align over a region uh, so he doesn't have to worry about using too many filters to separate them. It sounds like you're saying maybe with other... Manufacturers or just other speaker systems, we might only have a, a really narrow place where the phase aligns, and we need to just focus on that. Or they come with settings already in there; yeah. and we can't change them.
1: That's the main thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when we did it in the class with the UPJs, there was there was a crossover region that was doable from what like one twenty down to sixty or seventy, and. And with the Galileo, we put in high and low-pass filters to create a crossover because there was all of that overlap. But I've not experienced that problem with, with an L-Acoustics rig or with a JBL rig or a DMB rig. There's, it's, it's a clearly defined crossover region that the amp is doing, and it's done. I had a really interesting moment where I, I, I kept having this same like emotional state coming over me <laughs> over the four days okay. of like, oh, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've I've noticed certain things just through observation, and then kind of come up with my solutions to those problems, and they seem to be working, and so I keep doing them. But it's not really you know being able to understand either why this phenomenon is happening that I'm observing or why the solution that I am employing is effective. But one of the main things that helped me was having this clear workflow of from design to deployment to optimization of like, these are the steps you have to do to have success. As described by Bob, you start off in the physical world with the aim, then the splay angle, and then the spacing. So in other words, you have to get the PA physically placed, aimed, splayed in a way that is set for success. And if you can't do those things with the speakers that you have, you will find you have the wrong speakers for the job and there's nothing you can do outside of the realm of of the physical world to fix those things. So you have to have that done. Then you have the electronic solutions in order being EQ level and then finally the time and or phase in order to get everything to play together and then finally the impossible solution that is never an option is the acoustic treatment you know you can't solve acoustic problems without acoustic solutions so having that clear workflow to be able to kind of to come back to and kind of like okay i'm really having trouble with x y or z okay well Is it about aim? Is it about splay angle? Is it about spacing? You know, just kind of like being able to go back to that and reference that list. That was, I think that that's something that's really going to help my efficiency out in the field.
0: Dale, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live today to talk about the things that we learned from the Sound Sim 3 seminar. I feel like we should give a special thanks to Bob McCarthy. Um, Gavin Newsom and everyone at Myerson for putting these on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I mentioned this already, Dale, but this is the third time I took it. <laughs> this <laughs> time I was really like, I'm going to take a lot of notes. I'm going to really learn yeah. a lot. And I know that if I took it again, I would learn even more. Yeah. So maybe- I plan on taking
1: it again. Are you kidding me?
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe just to close out, if you could um, say maybe one- other course that you've taken or that you would like to take, something that's really helped you in the past, and something else that you would like to take into the future to uh, continue to master your craft.
1: I think I think I'd have to even expand on that further, and I I just think that doing any coursework that you can do is helpful. Uh, so I work for a sound company, and my inventory is fixed. I'm not out there touring with gear de jour. But I still take classes from manufacturers where our company doesn't own that gear, and it's 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 a pretty simple thing. Everybody has to deal with the same laws of physics. Electronics are electronics. Sound propagation is all the same once it leaves the box. It doesn't care if this is L acoustics or this is DMB or this is Meyer. It doesn't matter. And having th- these different tools in your toolbox to be able to pull from is wildly helpful. And having Training from you know from the manufacturer, whether it's smart training, which I highly recommend, or sim training, or the other Myers Design training that I've taken, or all of it, it all plays a vital role in me being able to do my job and do it successfully and being effective and efficient. Uh, just, you know, it's knowledge is power. The more you can get out there and do, the better. You just walk away with such a level of understanding. Uh, you can't just, you can't get that by reading a book or listening to a podcast you gotta go talk to people
0: cool so this is gonna be pretty easy because I already recorded a conversation with Dale earlier where we just sort of talked about some of our favorite takeaways from the SIM 3 course some of them are more complicated than others and so I'm just going to ask you what your maybe top two takeaways from the course were two things maybe that either stuck with you or uh, really you think are going to change the way you do work now or maybe you realize something that you have been doing wrong the entire time. Those are really really good ones that I think can help people.
2: You've already said something that I've been telling other people about it, which is like things that other colleagues of mine who did a five-day class in LA with Bob you just kind of feel like an idiot because you're like, oh, I've been doing that wrong my whole life, you know. <laughs> or it sort of confirms or debunks things that you've heard or you know, um, but with a reason. So part of why we get into trouble arguing with people is because there's you don't have like the concrete proof of like why is the ideal to orient things in a certain way or to shoot for a certain optimum. And Um, why
0: is that? Is that because audio education is far behind for for live sound or because... It's uh, a
2: combination of things. Definitely audio education is behind. This is also a big theme that I tell people that there's this complete feedback cycle or snowball effect of nobody teaches sound, so nobody is learning sound, which means that the few people who do it are really expensive.
0: The only right. thing that people teach is music production.
2: Right. And then the and then the people who can teach it will make more money by working. Oh, you
0: mean nobody like no person.
2: Like Got no it. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, there's not a lot of teachers and there's not a lot of students learning at a high level who then go on to become teachers, right? So there's just this fundamental lack, um, which is partly because of how new it is, right? I was just talking... With a cello player who wanted to quote me in their PhD paper. And I was trying to explain that, like, you know, people have been perfecting and teaching cello playing for like hundreds of years, right? And so there are conservatories where you go and you are taught by like a a master cello player. And there's not like one conservatory, but there are hundreds, right? Whereas audio, the science of system design or audio engineering, you know, is like 50 years old you know, maybe a little bit more. And so, and especially like system design, right, which, you know, we sort of saw the history of and why I kind of enjoy these classes is the idea that like we're in the living of the birth of the actual, you know, creation of the science and the art of, you know, sound design, basically. The beginnings of musical theater uh, prior to the 40s and 50s was acoustic, right? And singers had to sing and the orchestra had to be really quiet and then there's the advent of the wireless microphone. And well, even prior to that was wired microphones. Uh, Chorus Line, the original production of Chorus Line was done with wired microphones and shotguns and stuff like that. But the advent of the wireless completely changed musical theater. Now we're in this cycle, a a different kind of feedback effect of people are not cast and brought into schools for having powerful voices, like an opera singer would have to be, but they're brought into school for having a nice sounding voice. And so now by the time they become professional, we're now forced to use wireless microphones because we don't have musical theater singers that can project because that's not the, that's not like a fundamental, you know, must have for a musical theater singer. And and that's exactly how I do a, an opera chorus in consultation with a chorus master to choose you know, what eight people, eight or 12 people I'm going to put mics on in a 40 to 80 person chorus, say, I don't want the louder singer because they're already on top of the mix. So I want your less powerful singers, but who are strong centered singers, right? Because that's who I'm going to bring up to be the same as the loud singers. Mm -hmm. So very similar kind of concept.
0: what was something that really jumped out at you as like, oh my God, this is amazing or I'm going to use this every day now or what were the two really top things that stuck with you?
2: I think number one top thing because I think it applies to any combination of speakers is the joining of a 60V down point I think was sort of like an aha fundamental moment and I say that because we all know that say like you just have a center speaker that has, you know, a certain width, you know that the near corners are like need fills, right? Yep. They're just like, they're off access, they're out of the pattern of the speaker, the speaker is just like away and pointed away from the people that are there. So you know that you need speakers there, but this is something that we've all just kind of guessed at, right? It's just like, well, we need fills. And then you would just kind of like walk around the room until you felt like you had unity gain mm-hmm. or as close as you could get to unity gain you know, because, of course, you could, there's always, you know, oh, it's, it's too quiet here, it's too loud there, right? So you have to find a compromise point. Right, And then you would just be like, okay, like there's coverage. And so I think for me, the, the joining of 60B down points gave a method, you know, a scientific method of this is the process of how you want to actually join these zones, so that you get the most even coverage and that you can actually measure it and then you can prove it and see everything in between. So and then also about the time alignment and why that gives you, you know, the ideal of all the things that can go wrong when you put two speakers together and how time aligning and using 6dB downpoints gives you the optimum situation as far as comb filtering. And isolation.
0: Yeah, those spatial crossover points are critical where the the two speakers coverage hands off from one to the other. Right. And that's where we're like stitching the pieces of the quilt together to try and have even coverage. And so if there's gonna be a problem, it's probably gonna be there.
2: Also how you're trying to minimize too much crossover, right? Because then you're in comb filtering zone. But you don't want to have too little crossover because then you're going to have a amplitude drop in the middle where where nothing you're out of both patterns, right? So this is your this is your optimum of having even coverage
0: with minimum comb filtering. Nice. So combining um, coverage shapes at their six dB down points was big for you. What else?
2: Debunking the idea that you have to send a line array the same signal to every box is like totally garbage, Mm, right? There's no mystical magic about a line array and how it interacts with itself. It is exactly what it is, which is a collection of speakers right next to each other. And so the idea that Bob approaches tuning a line array simply as any other group of speakers, you tune the top box, done, pair it, tune it to the next box down. And then that becomes the new A, and that's a group. And then you add the next box, and then you add the next box. So it's not like, you know, starting all boxes on and listening to it and and manipulating a certain thing. It's the exact same process as with any other group of speakers. You know, there's no magic, basically, that's happening in a line array. Mm -hmm. It is just a bunch of boxes next to each other, and they behave like a bunch of speakers next to each other. There was this myth, for me, it was like when line arrays first came out and i think we kind of talked about it in the class a little bit this myth that like you get this perfect parallel wavefront that comes out of a line array <laughs> yeah well parallel coming out of the array but moving perpendicular from the speaker right and so mentally it's kind of like this idea that like somehow the low frequencies from the top box are not going 45 degrees down right that like the waves are somehow being pushed up by the boxes below them Right? So if you send a different signal to different boxes, then you're disturbing that you know, perfect timing of, of what's making that happen. And it's mm-hmm. like, that's total crap. Yeah. Um, the two-day class that I took a year ago um, was taught by a, a different Meyer instructor. But he was really big on saying that like there's this idea out there that line arrays focus low-end energy. And that's not what they do. What they do is they focus the cancel. And this is exactly my situation with the summer venue that I go to each year is I definitely notice the difference in low end in different places in the venue. And I would love to smooth it out. I know that I've wrecked some of that uh, focused cancel on the stage by putting in all pass filters and talking about process and feeling like now I feel like I have a, a method, a real scientifically based or reason reason based method of how I should go about optimizing a system, because I know he's not big on using the term tuning.
0: Yeah, because if your approach is not systematic, then you're kind of just making changes on a global scale without really knowing where the problem is. So yeah, maybe exactly. your problem was back earlier in a step when you should have adjusted the splay between the boxes, or it could have been anywhere, you know? And exactly. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about the course or anything else that's jumping out at you that you wanted to share?
2: I would definitely promote it as a must do for anyone that's serious about, you know, sound production because I think only because of our earlier conversation about the level of sound instruction that's out there, you know, you're basically limited to the knowledge of your instructor and I for one just think that, you know, you should just absorb as much knowledge as possible sound design <laughs>
0: Thanks to Dale West and Brian Moore for coming on the show. All music in today's episode is by Graham Spice, and you can find him at gramspice.com.